Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's time for us to begin. We're going through lesson three, Who Does Jesus Say That He Is? As the title of the lesson, you should have an outline that has that at the heading, <laughs> and not lesson two. I, didn't, I knew there was something going on as I was um, teaching uh, last Sunday, um, but I didn't stop to ask what's going on. Uh, everyone's looking at their stuff kind of strangely. But, yeah, sorry about that. Lesson three, Who Does Jesus Say That He Is? And um, we're in part one of this book, part one of this book, which is very different from parts two and three. Uh, so we'll notice that the book is going to change and in, in feel drastically when we come to part two as we move towards um, a more theological consideration of the doctrine of Christ and of the incarnation uh, from the perspective of church history. But uh, some of this should sound familiar to you if you've grown up in the church. It's not... Um, earth-shattering stuff, uh, you know, but it is foundational stuff that we need to know. Let's bow together for a word of prayer, and then we'll begin um, our way through this lesson. Our Father in heaven, we do give thanks to you for your kindness to us. I thank you for the Lord's Day. It is so refreshing to have a day set apart in this way, uh, where we are to rest, we are to worship, we are to assemble together. It is so good to assemble together with, with your people, O Lord. And so we give you thanks for this day where we are able to be refreshed in the soul, where we are able to give glory to you in a, in a way unique from all the other days of the week. Would you help us now in this Sunday school time that we would gain a greater, greater understanding of who Christ is and what he has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Lesson one, approaching scripture on its own terms to identify Christ. So there we dealt with foundational issues. Uh, if we're going to know who Christ is and what He has done for us, where are we going to go? It, it has to be to the Scriptures. Uh, Christ is not revealed to us anywhere else. We're not going to reason our way to an understanding of Christ, His person and His work. We're not going to um, consider Him through historical inquiry either. Uh, those who do so end up making Christ in their own image, really. Uh, they begin to project themselves and their desires upon the question, who is Jesus Christ and what does He mean for us today? So we must go to the Scriptures and allow Scriptures to speak um, on its own terms to us to identify Christ. Uh, we must identify Christ not just from select texts of Scripture, but from the Bible storyline, and that's what Lesson 2 taught us. We are to identify Christ from the Bible storyline, the story of creation, man's fall into sin, God's promise to redeem, and the accomplishment of our redemption in Christ Jesus. So context is, is, is very important, and we're not only talking about the immediate context of individual passages, but the whole context of the whole of Scripture needs to be brought into view when we are asking the question, who is Jesus Christ and what has He done for us? And in the next two lessons, we will ask the question, first, who does Jesus say that He is? And then, second, next week, uh, what does the New Testament have to say about Christ? So, in the Gospels, we are given uh, insight into who Jesus Himself said that He was and is. And then, as we move on in the New Testament, from Acts onward, we will gain insight into who the apostles and disciples of Jesus Christ said uh, that He is. And so we'll consider that next, uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing. Did Jesus know Himself to be the Son incarnate? That is how this chapter begins with that question. Did Jesus Himself uh, know Himself to be God the Son incarnate? 
Did Jesus self-identify as the eternal Son of the Father, the promised human Messiah who came to reveal the Father to do the works of God and by so doing demonstrate that He is God the Son, uh, that is the second person of the triune God? Uh, Wellam says these are not easy questions to answer because on the one hand, Scripture teaches that Jesus was born, increased in wisdom and in stature, Luke 2.52, and did not know certain things, Matthew 24.36. This reality reveals that Jesus is fully human, the promised seed of the woman, and thus able to act as our covenant head and redeemer. I think what Wellam is doing here is he's showing us that when we talk about Christ, you know, we, we get kind of two sides to the story in, in the New Testament. Uh, sometimes it is it is his human nature that is emphasized. Sometimes it is it is his divine nature. And it, when it comes to the question of what, what what Christ understood himself to be, there is a sense in which he grew in his understanding. There, there, the, the scriptures are clear about this. And then on the other hand, Jesus Jesus's self understanding is that he is more than merely a human image son. He is also the divine son. This truth is also stated clearly in the New Testament. And so we have to hold these two truths in tension. In tension. Uh, they, they are not contradictory, but we have to confess both things to be true at once. There is a sense in which Jesus Christ, as a human being, grew in wisdom and in stature. There is also clear, um, clear evidence, uh, clear teaching in the New Testament that Jesus Christ did understand himself to be more than a mere man. He understood himself to be the Son of God incarnate, the Messiah of Israel promised from long ago. So where do we see this? The chapter is broken into uh, two big parts. Uh, First of all, we will look at the implicit witness of Christ, and then we will look at the explicit witness of Christ. What is meant by this? Well, there are a number of things that we see in the Gospels that imply strongly. They may not state it in a very direct way, but by way of implication, they teach that Jesus Christ is the Son of God incarnate, that He is more than a mere man. He is, he is utterly unique. And so we will first look at the implicit witness of Christ, and then we will go to more explicit or direct uh, claims made in the Gospels concerning uh, the, the divinity of Christ, that He is the Son of God incarnate. Under the category of the implicit, wit- implicit witness of Christ, we will look at his baptism, his life and ministry, his death and resurrection, the fact that praise and worship is offered up to him, the fact that he inaugurated God's kingdom, uh, those one, two, three, four, five things. So at baptism, at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus and the Father addressed him as his beloved, beloved son, Matthew three sixteen through 17. And Wellam points out that from the Bible storyline, so here we go again, we're going to interpret this event not in isolation from the rest of the story of Scripture, but we're going to consider the whole whole of Scripture. From the Bible storyline, Jesus knows that to have the Spirit from the Father signals that He is the promised Messiah who inaugurates God's kingdom. And here is listed Isaiah 61, 1-2, and Luke 4, 16-21. See also Ezekiel 34. What does Messiah mean except anointed one? So the Spirit descending upon Jesus at His baptism signals that He is the anointed one of God in a way that no one else was. 
David was God's anointed in a sense, but not in this way. Uh, Jesus at his baptism, there's a vision of the Spirit of, of, of God descending upon him. And along with that, uh, the declaration from God, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But to be the Spirit-anointed Messiah, Wellam goes on to say, is also to be identified with Yahweh, since it is only God who does such a work. You may see Psalm 110, Isaiah 9, 6-7. Here, um, Wellam is drawing our attention to the fact that in the Old Testament, in these passages that look forward to the coming Messiah, there, is, there are some passages that emphasize that He's going to be a man, uh, the, the seed of the woman and the son of Abraham and David. He's going to be human. There are other passages in the Old Testament that make it clear that he is going to be more than a mere man. He is going to be the Lord himself. And under the Old Testament, um, these things were held in tension and viewed as mysteries. They, they are called in the New Testament, I think, the mystery of Christ. So things that were veiled or mysterious in the Old Testament become clear in the New once Christ comes. Ah, we see what the Old Testament text meant. Uh, God it was going to redeem sinners uh, through the God-man, Jesus the Messiah. And here Wellam is saying that at Jesus' baptism, as the Holy Spirit descends upon him, uh, he and we are to understand him to be God's anointed one, the Messiah promised from long ago. And if we understand what the Old Testament taught concerning the coming Messiah, uh, beginning in Genesis 3, but especially uh, in the prophets, we, we know that we are to expect this Messiah to be unique, uh, the God-man. Um, the Old Testament revealed this in a mysterious way. It's made explicitly clear in the New Testament. So Jesus' baptism and the way that it was done and what happened there implies strongly that he is more than a mere human being. He is the utterly unique Messiah of Israel. He is the God-man. Life and ministry now. Throughout his life and ministry, we see that Jesus understands himself to be the Son in unique relation to the, his Father and the only man to share the authority and power of God himself. This is shown in Jesus' teaching and miracles. In Matthew, um, we read, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Uh, Wellam, in this portion of the book, just makes note of the fact that Matthew's gospel is really divided according to these themes of, first, the teaching of Christ, and then, uh, the, the works of Christ or these miracles of Christ that he performed. And that is why he says, see Matthew 4.23 and also Matthew 9.35. Uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew shows us who Jesus is by emphasizing first his teaching and then his, the miracles that he performed. These two things together imply that he is the God-man. He taught with a, the, a kind of authority that no one else taught with. And that was noted. And he did things that no one else could do but God alone. He performed these miracles to function as signs to the reality of who he is. Uh, the Messiah of Israel, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Son of God incarnate. Why is this significant? Wellam goes on to ask, Jesus' teaching, Matthew 5-7, through and miracles, Matthew 8-9, through are not merely like that of Moses or Elijah, who were 
who were specially endowed with the Spirit. No other leader ever inaugurated God's promised kingdom. Jesus is simply in a different category, and He knows it. So I've picked little phrases out of a paragraph here in Wellam on pages 53 through 54. Uh, The point is this. He he taught and did things that no one else, in in a way, that that no one else did or, or could. Okay. Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of the Law, Prophets, and Psalms, for example. Uh, that's quite a claim. To claim to be the fulfillment of the Law, Prophets, and Psalms is quite a claim. And yet Jesus made it uh, repeatedly. He claimed to be its sole authoritative interpreter also. The way that he preached, uh, he, he preached with, with, with great authority. Um, and we are to see all of that. So we are to consider Jesus' teachings. We are also to consider Jesus' miracles. Jesus' healing miracles revealed God's promised kingdom and the arrival of the Messianic age. That's a wonderful point. The prophets spoke of a day when these sorts of things would happen on earth, and they happened through Jesus the Messiah. You may see Luke 7, 22-23, and also these passages in Isaiah that are listed here, for example. So when he healed the bl- when he healed the sick, um, when he gave sight to the blind, when he raised even the dead, uh, the, these, you know, it's funny. Sometimes people look at these things and go, "See, Jesus's will for us is that we be healed physically." You know, he came to touch us physically so that we would not suffer. And some put that emphasis upon all of the healing miracles that Jesus performed, as if this was his mission to. Um, heal physical ailments, you see, to heal physical blindness, to heal physical lameness. And no doubt the Lord does heal, and we pray that He would heal, and we are commanded to do so in the Scriptures. I am not denying that, but we must see that these healing miracles of Jesus were were about something more than just the relief of suffering in individuals. They also signaled that He was the promised Messiah, and that He had come to inaugurate God's kingdom and the messianic age, the new covenant era uh, was here. Um, Remember when John the Baptist, after preparing the way for Jesus so effectively and boldly, he was thrown into prison and he began to have doubts as to whether or not Jesus was the one. And so John the Baptist, as a human being, (laughs) was struggling like we would all struggle. uh, There being imprisoned and facing death, and he begins to then ask, is he the one? Is he the one? And what did Jesus say? Well, go tell John. Go, go tell John what's going on. Go tell him how the blind see and the lame are made to walk. You know, go report to him what it is that I'm doing, these, mirac- these, these miracles that I'm performing. And that was to bring relief and reassurance to John that indeed this was the Messiah and indeed the kingdom of God was being inaugurated, the messianic age was here, right? And that this was demonstrated through the miracles that Jesus performed. Number two under B, D, Jesus' authority and power over nature are significant, especially when placed in the Bible storyline and not viewed in isolation. In the Old Testament, Yahweh reveals that He alone has the authority to claim, uh, to calm rather, the stormy sea. You may look at Psalm 65, 7, 107, 23 through 31, etc. There's a whole passage here. But when Jesus demonstrates his authority over, over nature, he is, he is 
implying, uh, he is showing us, without saying so, he is showing us that he is, he is Yahweh. He is identifying himself with Yahweh. It, it was Yahweh in the, who in the beginning spoke the heavens and the earth into existence and brought order to the, to the um, uh, chaotic, if I could just use that word, state that existed uh, on, on day one, on the morning of day one of, of creation, right? Uh, and Jesus here, by calming the seas um, and, and showing that he has the power to control nature, um, was demonstrating that he and Yahweh are to be identified with one another in, in some way. And we are going to talk about how we are to do that in the rest of, of this study. Consider also Jesus' claim to have the authority to forgive sins, to judge and to raise the dead. So, he could forgive sins, and that really agitated the Pharisees, if you remember, because they understood it. Only God can do that. You know, so why are you saying that you have the authority? For, this is blasphemy. Well, it would have been blasphemy if it weren't true <laughs> that he was the Son of God incarnate. The, the Pharisees were right about that. For a human being to stand up and say, you know, I, have the, I in and of myself, have the authority to forgive your sins, that would be a blasphemous thing to say. But Jesus was not a mere man. He was the Son of God incarnate. And so indeed he did have the authority to forgive sins as God's anointed one, as the Messiah, as the king of God's eschatological kingdom, uh, through whom he would judge the world, who he will judge the world, rather. So we're to consider all of these things. It, does Jesus come out and say, I am the Son of God incarnate? Um, well, we'll get to that in a moment. But through these Miracles that he performed, and through these claims that he made in his life and ministry, we see that it is absolutely strongly implied through these things that he is the Son of God incarnate. He's to be identified with Yahweh. In his death and resurrection, he also proves to be more than a mere man, of course. He viewed his death as central to his divinely planned messianic mission. He did not view himself as a martyr, but willingly went to the cross in obedience to the Father. And he knew that his death would bring divine judgment on the world because he is the Son, John 12, 30-33, and would reconcile God and man because he has the authority to forgive sins, Mark 2, 5-11. Who can forgive sins but God alone is again the question. So Jesus died. He was not a martyr. He gave himself up willingly. He knew that his death was utterly unique. It was not like the death that any other human beings experience in that he died for others to atone for sins. And I do not have a point here on the resurrection, and I should. I, I must have missed something in Wellam's chapter here. Uh, but the fact that he rose from the dead on the third day is obviously a, um, a pretty significant sign that he's not a mere man, uh, but is the Messiah, the Son of God, come in the flesh. He did not remain in the grave, but rose on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Uh, if that does not imply that Jesus is more than a mere man, I don't know what does. What about the issue of praise and worship? People praised and worshipped Jesus, and He did not rebuke them for it. In a biblical worldview, God alone is worthy to receive worship. We understand this. God alone is to be worshipped. Um, we're to worship God alone. We're to not worship any other thing. Um, we're not to make idols. It's just central to the whole biblical worldview. And yet Jesus receives human worship and never rebukes people for giving it. Uh, the Pharisees also noticed this and were upset about it, rightly so, if it were not true that Jesus was the eternal Son of God incarnate. Why is He worthy of worship, brothers and sisters? Why is He worthy of worship? Uh, 
Uh, is he worthy to receive worship according to his human nature? We say no, but it is the divine nature that makes him worthy to receive worship. And it is in fact uh, because the human and the divine are united in the person of the Son that Jesus is the worthy object of our worship. He is to be worshipped because he is the person of the Son incarnate. He is to be worshipped. I'm tempted to go on a side note. I won't. Uh, maybe later in this study. Jesus, Jesus actually goes beyond this, though. He does not only not rebuke people for worshiping Him, He demands veneration. He demands it. He requires it of us. Knowing that His Father had committed all authority to Him, Jesus explains why He has done so, why He demands veneration. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. John 5.23. I think there are other texts listed here in the book. I've chosen this one. But just think of that statement. Jesus said that we are to honor Him just as we honor the Father. Just as. So in the same way that we honor the Father, in the same way that we worship the Father, we are to worship Him, Jesus, the Son of God incarnate. And if we do not honor Him, then we do not honor the Father. That's an incredible demand that He makes. He does not only not rebuke people for worshiping Him, He demands that we give to Him the same honor that we give to God the Father. Uh, this is because He is the Son of God incarnate. It's when I say implied, I don't mean like weakly implied or vaguely implied. I mean strongly implied. We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate if this is true. Either that or He is blasphemous. You see? Those are the choices that are before us really. Either He really is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh or He was a heretic. He was a heretic. One or the other. You've, kind of heard, you've heard that argument before. He was either... Liar, lunatic, or Lord. Right? And I, that's true. Like, those are your choices. You can't get stuck in between one of these things and go, you know, I don't really think he was God incarnate. I mean, he was a great man, a great teacher. And I'm a Christian because I think Jesus was a great man and great teacher, but not really the Lord with us, you know. Ah, you're stuck in the middle here, and you're going to get hung up on a the horns of a major dilemma. He, is, he was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. And by Lord, I mean all caps, Lord, Yahweh, the eternal Son of God come in the flesh, you see. Um, so he demanded veneration. And then the last point that is made here under the category of the implicit witness of Christ has to do with the inauguration of God's kingdom. Uh, this is a, a marvelous point that is made. The Gospels especially the synoptics. When you, that word synoptics is a reference to uh, the first uh, three Gospels in, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John uh, has a different style to it, you, you've probably noticed. So the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is also a Gospel, but it has a different approach. The Gospels, especially the synoptics, view Christ's entire life and ministry in terms of the inauguration of God's kingdom but in the Old Testament thought, the coming of God's kingdom not only comes through the Davidic king, a son king to Yahweh, or the father, 2 Samuel 7.14, but also 
is an act of God to restore His people, forgive sin, and usher in a new creation. In this way, the human Son King is also identified with God. And it is significant, therefore, that Jesus claims that He inaugurates this kingdom. Um, Covenant theology is important. I bring it into preaching often, especially when we're going through books like the book of Exodus. I, I get some feedback uh, from you about the preaching. And truth be told, the feedback I get, I understand it, is it's always going to be heavily biased in the way of the positive direction. If somebody wants to encourage me, and, and uh, they'll, they'll say something positive. So maybe people have negative opinions that they, they just keep to themselves. But we've been going through the book of Exodus rather slowly, and I'm approaching it. You know, some of these sermons are long. I view some of these sermons that I've preached on the book of Exodus as being some of the most important that I've preached to date in, in that I'm trying to show you the, the, the big themes of Scripture. You know, I'm trying to remind you of the big themes about Sabbath rest and eschatological temple and eschatological kingdom. And I constantly go back to these themes of especially kingdom, you know, uh, promised and rejected, uh, 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 excuse me, offered but rejected, promised inaugurate, uh, no, I can't even do it myself now, um, prefigured, inaugurated, consummated, right? I, I mean, I, I kind of beat these things to death a little bit. I understand that. But it's so crucial to properly understanding the Bible. You can't really understand Jesus or what's said about Him in the synoptics without understanding the progression, especially of the development of the kingdom of God and finding its inauguration and final consummation in Christ Jesus. And that's what Wellam is saying here, that when, when we are told, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand by John the Baptist and by Jesus, that's a big deal. And if you don't understand what's been said about kingdom prior to the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus, you're going to be lost. You're just lost. You've got to know the pre-story. You've got to know the Old Testament. And here Wellam is saying that this actually helps us to understand that Jesus is more than a mere man. He's the Son of God incarnate because in the Old Testament we know that the one who inaugurates God's kingdom and brings it to a consummation is going to be both a son of David and yet one greater than David. Um, David famously says, um, is it Psalm 110 uh, where uh, the Lord said to my Lord... how, how do I not know that? I'm confusing myself right now. I mean, but it's just marvelous to consider that that Jesus, that David knew that his son, his son that was promised to him, who would inaugurate and consummate God's eternal kingdom, would be one greater than him, and would be identified with Yahweh Himself. You know, so there was that expectation, there was that knowledge, that was mysterious under the Old Testament, though. The angels and the prophets of old longed to look into these things to know exactly how they would be. These truths were revealed. And so when John the Baptist and Jesus come and speak in that way, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, it's a, it's, it should hit you right between the eyes. It should. If you know the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, it, it should just hit you right between the eyes. This is the one. This is the promised Messiah. This is no mere human being. This is the God-man who has come to, to undo all the mess that Adam made and to bring the kingdom to its final consummation in due time, inauguration, consummation. Okay. This is a little comment that kind of applies to 
everything that's been said under this section. I'm, I'm looking at point two here just before section three. In fact, Wellam says, much of Jesus' implicit witness to himself depends on this unavoidable deduction. If the works that Jesus does can only be accomplished by God, then by performing these works, the man Jesus implies that he, as the Son, shares the same authority of the Father. That really does kind of apply to everything that's been said. You know, if Jesus is in the boat and he calms the stormy sea, I mean, he does so on his own authority, right? That is a work that only God can do, and it implies that he is more than a mere man, you see. Uh, Moses did something like that at the Red Sea, didn't he? He divided the waters, but he did so in a different way than Jesus did it. You know, he was commanded by God to take a staff and to do this. It was so clearly the work of God being done on earth through his mediation. But Christ just does it. He just speaks. He speaks with authority. You see what I'm saying? So these things strongly imply that he is more than a mere man, but is the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. Explicit witness of Christ. So here are more direct uh, statements that we could look at um, in, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, to, uh, to show that He is the God-man, the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. First of all, Wellam mentions the use of Abba, or Father. Jesus addresses God by the use of the Aramaic term Abba, and he says that this is singular and unique. Jesus does this in a way that no one else does. Okay, He calls God Father in an utterly unique way, according to Wellam. And I think he is right. He goes on to clarify almost immediately, We call God Abba, Father, now as adopted sons because of Jesus' work in our covenant union with Him, see Romans 8.15. Jesus' use of the term, however, is due to His unique relationship to His Father. He is the eternal Son. That's marvelous. We have been invited to call God Father, Abba Father, not because we are eternal sons of, and daughters of God, you, you see, um, Jesus was that and called God Father in that sense as the eternal Son. We called God Father because of our redemption in Christ Jesus, because we have been adopted in Him, because of our spirit-wrought union in Christ. We are sons because we are united to the Son, you see. Jesus is a Son, and we are sons and daughters of God, but not in the same way, not in the same way at all. He is the Son, eternally so. The term Son of God also shows that He is the Son of God. Uh, this term is closely identified with the image of God. Adam, Israel, and David were sons, but Christ is greater. That is the point here. Jesus' sonship is more than being a mere human. He is also the eternal Son, the true image and exact representation of the Father. You may see Colossians 1.15, Hebrews 1.2. So that's getting on later into the witness of the New Testament. We'll probably get there in the next lesson more thoroughly. But he is referred to as the Son of God, but he is referred to as the Son of God in, in a unique way, not in the same way that you and I are called sons and daughters of God, not in the same way that David was a son of God or Israel. He is the eternal Son of God. 
and we'll see that uh, to be true, I think, especially in our next chapter. His favorite title, though, for himself, his favorite title for himself was Son of Man. Jesus testifies to his identity as God the Son incarnate by his most common self-designation, the Son of Man. That might sound strange. How does the title Son of Man emphasize that he is the Son of God? Uh, Well, in this way, Wellam first of all says, no doubt the title refers to Jesus' humanity. So that title, Son of Man, does place emphasis upon the fact that he was a true human, no doubt. But in Daniel 7, so here we go again, referencing the Old Testament. It's kind of important to know what the Old Testament says. Uh, Son of man takes on the significance of a superhuman figure who functions alongside the Ancient of Days, that is, Yahweh. In Daniel's vision, God gives his kingdom to one like a son of man. There is a quotation from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. In Daniel's vision, God gives his kingdom over to one like a son of man. But this son is different from all others. He comes on the clouds of heaven. His reign lasts forever. And his reign gives dominion over the whole earth to his kingdom people. You may see Daniel 7, 13 through 14, 18, 22, 27 thus identifying him with God. So in Daniel 7, (coughs) we are told that the Messiah, excuse me, the Messiah, if I could use that term, is going to be one like the Son of Man, and then this one like the Son of Man is described to us. He is identified with, with God. Jesus uses this title in his humiliation as a man, to save the lost, Matthew 8.20, Mark 10.45, and His divine authority to forgive sins, Mark 2.10, and in in His divine power to resurrect the dead, Matthew 17.9. So, in His humility, Jesus uses this title often of Himself. He is the Son of Man. But we must have Daniel 7 in our minds if we were to understand what He means by that. And we must also see when it is that He uses this term. He uses it while uh, performing... Uh, miracles and claiming to have the power to forgive sins and resurrect the dead. And Jesus also refers to himself as the Son of Man in his resurrected incarnational ascension to the throne of the Father. So he uses this term of himself after he, after he raised from the dead and as he's ascending to the Father. He, he's, he's using it to show us that he is this figure of Daniel 7 who is more than a mere man, who is in fact the Messiah who came to live, die, rise, and ascend in order to bring God's kingdom uh, to a consummation. He is the one who will return as the King of heaven, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, Matthew 24, 30. So this title, Son of Man, does emphasize Jesus' humanity, no doubt, It was his favorite title for himself, but given the Old Testament background, Daniel 7 especially, we understand that this title, Son of Man, actually points to Jesus' utter uniqueness, that he's more than a mere human. He is the Son of God come in the flesh. What about the divine purpose and work of Jesus? Jesus identifies as God the Son incarnate and the purpose of his coming. On numerous occasions, Jesus offers, I have come to statements, in which he reveals why he has come. I have come to... And then he reveals that his mission is a mission that no mere human being could ever, ever accomplish. It's a mission that God himself must do uh, to overthrow the power of darkness, to 
overthrow the works of the evil one, to destroy the kingdom of Satan, and to bring God's eternal kingdom to a consummation, to bring the forgiveness of sins to God's people, etc. I have come to, and then when Jesus tells us what he has come to do, we must look at him and say, no mere man, he must be God with us. And in fact, he is that very thing. The I am statements of Jesus, there's actually a large section in Wellam's book here. I think you're most familiar with this concept, and so I've stated it very briefly in the outline for the sake of space and time. When Jesus refers to himself as I am, without predicate, John 6, 28, 24, 28, 58, 18, 5, 6, and 8, <laughs> he links his personal identity with the unique personal name of Yahweh, Creator, Covenant, Lord, Exodus 3, 6 through 14. So, know your Old Testament. We've been studying through the book of Exodus, and we know that when God commissioned Moses to go redeem Israel from bondage, he revealed himself to Moses as the great I Am. Um, He brought greater clarity to what the, the name Yahweh means in that moment. Yahweh means that God is the covenant Lord, He is the self-existent one, the one who exists and was never brought into existence nor depends upon anything for his continued existence. He is the one, he is the fire that that dwells in the bush that is not consumed. You know, he, he does not need any fuel for the fire of his existence. In other words, Yahweh is the great I am. And yet Jesus, uh, throughout his ministry, uh, referred to himself as I am. It's a weird way of talking, isn't it? When you and I say, I am, there's something in the sentence that follows. I am Joe. I am hungry. <laughs> Whatever it is. you know. Uh, but Jesus would refer to himself as, I am. Thus identifying himself with Yahweh. Jesus said to them in John 8.58, and this is the most famous I am text, I think. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why did they pick up stones to throw at him after he uttered these words, before Abraham was, I am? Because they knew exactly what he was saying. Again, Jesus is either the I am, come in the flesh, yes, or he is a heretic. He uttered blasphemies in this moment. And the Jews who pick up stones to throw at him, who picked up stones to throw at him, um, they had the opinion that he was uttering blasphemies in that moment. He was claiming to exist prior to Abraham. You can't claim that. I can't claim that. Um, No mere human being can claim to exist prior to the moment that they are born into this world. We are brought into existence at a certain time. Jesus was born uh, to, to Joseph and to Mary uh, in time, and yet here he is saying as a, you know, what, 30-year-old man, before Abraham was, I am, and more than this, the use of the words, I am, uh, signaled that he was to be identified with Yahweh. They understood what he meant, and so because of this, they wanted to kill him. They understood that he was claiming to be God with us. Finally, he is the object of faith. Jesus explicitly makes himself the object of saving faith 
and that is reserved for God alone. Repeatedly, the Old Testament teaches that salvation belongs to the Lord. The New Testament doesn't contradict this truth, but it now makes Jesus the proper object of saving faith. Listen um, to these verses. A number are listed here, but I've picked three. John 12.44, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. So, to believe in Jesus to the saving of our souls is to believe in who? There is no difference. To believe in Jesus, well, there is a difference, but there is no difference. We must distinguish, and that's what we'll do in this, this study. To believe in Jesus is to believe in God. B, John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So to believe in God is to believe in Jesus. There it's stated in the reverse. And then 1 Peter 1, 20-21 is really interesting as well. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but He was made manifest, um, visible to us, in these last times for the sake of you, who through, through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Who do you trust in for your salvation? Who do you trust in for your salvation? Uh, what would be the proper way of speaking Okay, the triune God. You guys are good. Because, yeah, we. I, well, there's. I, I guess there's uh, two ways to say it, right? Who do you trust in for your salvation? I trust in God for my salvation. That is not an inaccurate thing to say. Believe in God for, this, for the salvation of, of your souls, for the forgiveness of sins. More specifically, though, what, what, what should we say? Through His Son, through the Son of God incarnate. We ought to say, believe in Jesus specifically. Uh, do not merely believe in God in an unspecified way, but believe in God and in the work that He has done for you to accomplish your salvation through the sending of the Son to live, die, and rise again for the forgiveness of sins. You see, So to believe in Jesus is to believe in God, and to believe in God so long as you understand what God has done for you, is to believe in Jesus. He, he makes himself the object of faith in his, in his ministry. Um, that's an incredible thing to do, uh, to say. I, just, it's not difficult. Can you imagine me standing up before you and say, saying, friends, believe in me for life everlasting. You would be right to pick up stones, wouldn't you? I mean, that's, that's an audacious claim. That's, that's, that's a blasphemous, that is a totally blasphemous thing to say. If I were to stand up before you and say, believe in me for the salvation of your souls, for the forgiveness of sins, you would rightly call me um, a blasphemer of God. Uh, you, you would put me out. So quickly, and rightly so. But Jesus did that over and over again. Or if I were to say to you, for you to believe in me is to believe in God. And for you to believe in God is to believe in me. I mean, that's, what, that's the kind of thing that these crazy cult leaders might say. They're to be avoided. <laughs> They're to be cast off. But Jesus said this. 
he said this. He made these kinds of claims. And I think that is why we are to look at, at, at also his miracles and the fact of his resurrection. The, the, these, these, these really bold claims were backed up by the performance of miraculous deeds and ultimately by his resurrection from the dead on the, on the third day, uh, proving that he was in fact God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. I, I didn't really plan it for this reason, but it's worked out very nicely. We're about to celebrate the Christmas season, aren't we? And here we are going through a study on, uh, the, in, on the incarnation. It's really wonderful. We're about to the end of our study of the book of Exodus also, and I think what I'm going to do is take the congregation through a study of the book of Luke. Um, I've talked about Hebrews before, but I kind of feel like our study on the book of Exodus has been a study of the book of Hebrews <laughs> in some ways. It, it, not quite, but we, we will come back to Hebrews at some point. Um, I think we're going to go through Luke, the Gospel of Luke. I think it'll be a good thing for us to do, but it's timely also. Our study on the incarnation of Christ, uh, the Christmas season, and then maybe a consideration of the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, in just a couple of weeks here, uh, Lord willing, it'll line up just right, you know. Um, any questions uh, about uh, what you're, you've been exposed to here? I, I've warned you, part one and part two are very different. I think this is stuff you've probably heard before if you've grown up in the church. Uh, I think part two will be a little more new to you as we look at the Chalcedonian definition and, and consider um, Christology from a historical perspective, the development of that doctrine from a historical perspective. Scott? I find it interesting. Well, I I love how he expands on on his arguments about Christ's deity. I mean, essentially, that's you know that's the, the crux of, of this section, and um, and in ways that you know you have to kind of understand the concepts and the, and the logic versus just the proof text. But unless I missed it, it seems like there were a couple of very explicit proof texts that either. Touches his, his side, touches his, touches his, his hands, and he says, "My Lord and my God." It's just like, well, these are like these are the, the most explicit texts about Jesus. This, where he's just really not referring to these kinds of things. Hmm. Or is there a reason? You know, I I'm wondering if it'll be picked up on in the next chapter. But you're right in the explicit references section. You would think that those would be mentioned too. I, or maybe his approach is to draw attention to some of the more often overlooked uh, passages. And to I, I don't know. I, I did. I agree with you. I noticed the same thing. Like there, are, um, there are other texts that are more commonly used as proof text passages. But um, I can't tell you why. Uh, it might pop up in the next chapter. I can't remember if he addresses some of those, even though those are in the Gospels. Yeah. Oh, the synoptics? Yeah, he does go into John, though, a bit, too, and talks about the I am statements and stuff. So, I agree with you. I think there are, there are other passages that are just right in your face, you know. Um, well, even the name that is given to Christ, Emmanuel, which means God 
with us. And that's drawing upon Old Testament too, right? So this was revealed in the Old Testament and it was made very direct and explicit with that is coming and is recorded for us in the New Testament. Good point. I, I don't really have an answer for that right now, but um, yeah, interesting. Okay, we're over time. Uh, we are going to start morning worship on time. We're going to do it. And we're going to just stick with it. I got my alarm back on my phone. Phil's been appointed as the timekeeper. Now the pressure's on. If we don't start on time, you can talk to him about it. Mike's going to be up here with prelude music five minutes before. The bell's going to ring one minute before on time. We're, going to, we're just going to stick with it. And then uh, please come to afternoon worship service, brothers and sisters. Um, I am going to double down on this issue. I really am. Uh, if you have to choose two things, choose AMPM worship. This catechetical preaching thing is super important. Okay. Uh, and it's not the time for me to tell you why I think that, but I'm going to double down on it. 